You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, episode 62 with Perdita Felician. You're listening to the Trailblazers podcast, where we will explore the stories of successful black professionals. Join us as we highlight the knowledge, resources, and tools of these accomplished trailblazers to help provide the know-how, confidence, and motivation you need to blaze your trail. And now, here's your host, Stephen Hart. Hello, friends. How are you guys doing today? I pray that you're doing great things and experiencing much success this year at home, at work, and in all areas of your life right now. So listen, you're going to absolutely love today's featured guest. Her name is Perdita Felician. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Perdita in just a minute. But before I do, I want you to hear the words of founder and CEO Sean Dove of our sponsoring organization, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. When Sean reminds us that God gave us two hands so that we can build with one hand while we battle with the other. And friends, I'd love to invite you today to discover how CBME is building beloved communities for black men and boys with one hand while they're battling the social and racial injustices with the other. I want you to hop on over to tbpod.com slash black male achievement. And there you'll be able to see their love, learn, lead mission in action. So guys, today's episode follows an amazing one that you know we published last week with Keisha Smith Jeremy who spoke on the topic of leadership so if you're in a corporate world if you manage folks if you're into leadership you definitely have to go back and check out Keisha's content it was a great episode and I think today we have a, a terrific follow-up to that conversation we're talking with Perdita Felician she is a two-time Olympian 10-time national champion and the only Canadian woman to win a world championship gold medal in track and field. So during her career as a 100-meter hurdler, she earned numerous honors, including Canada's Athlete of the Year, Keys to the City of Pickering, the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal. Perdita actually retired from professional sport in 2013, and she's now a sports broadcaster and speaker, and she was inducted into Athletics Canada's Hall of Fame. I was part of CBC's broadcast team at the Summer Olympic Games, and she also hosts the CBC sports podcast called Off Guard. So in today's episode, in today's interview, we talked about so many topics. We covered domestic violence to the mindset you need to win to right mindset for raising kids to pivoting careers and ex- executing that transition successfully. And we talked about so much more. So ladies and gentlemen, I, I want you guys right to grab a pad and a pen or your your favorite note-taking app get set to jot down some goodness you're gonna you know I'm, I'm gonna challenge you right now to to begin working on and putting into action today latest tomorrow some of the wisdom that you're gonna take away from today's episode and i encourage you to go ahead and share this episode right with your colleagues your friends your family uh, let someone who needs to know about this episode contact them reach out to them and, and tell them to listen right hop on over to tbpod.com Tell them to listen to, you know, episode 62 right now. So before we get into my conversation with Perdita, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Art Steele, who left us a super cool uh, review on iTunes. And it reads, great work, awesome guests, and very insightful questions, follow up and answers from your guest. I can tell you put so much work into it. And thanks for bringing such great information to our fingertips. Art, thank you so much for that review. Uh, I absolutely do put 
so much work into the podcast. It's a labor love. It's not my full-time job, you know, but it is it is all heart and all passion. And, you know, I feel like this is something that is much bigger than me. I always share that with, with your listeners. I feel like, you know, God has, has put me in a position to, um, to, to, to carry out, execute this podcast. And so I appreciate your review. And guys, if you've not yet done so, please leave us a review over on iTunes, your feedback, your encouragement. You have no idea how much I appreciate that. And it's great to be able to put a name to those download numbers. So reach out, let me know, you know, who you are, right? We'll continue giving shout outs more frequently for some of these amazing reviews that uh, are left for us over on iTunes. So make sure check out the full show notes page uh, for today's episode. Uh, you can find that over at tbpod.com. And so that's it. Let's get set to receive some mission fuel from today's trailblazer, Perdita Felician. Enjoy. Perdita, welcome and thanks for being our featured guest. Oh, my pleasure. You know, at this at the point, right? That episode, uh, this episode is going live. Uh, we'll be nearing the end of March, and our month-long focus uh, on celebrating Women's History Month. And I'm so happy to have you here and to be celebrating you and and your amazing contributions, right, to the sport of track and field and to Canada. And so, you know, I wanted to start off. We always start off our, our episodes from a place of gratitude on the podcast. And um, over the past four weeks, I've I've asked this question to our, our, our the other ladies that we've we've this month and I'm going to do the same with you. So I'd love to, to maybe have you share your thoughts on women who have inspired you and, and really made an indelible mark on your life. Yeah. Um, for me, it's going to have to be my mother, Kathy. And, um, you know, she was born in St. Lucia, came to this country by herself when she was, you know, 19 years old. Uh, at that point, she was a teen mom, had two little kids. I wasn't born yet. And um, basically was was a living nanny and a housekeeper. And within a few months of getting into the country, thinking she was going to start this great life, the family who hired her was going to send her back within a week or within months. So my mom figured out a way to stay in Canada. And honestly, the legacy, the ripple out effect has been, you know, she has five children. She has 13 nieces and nephews. And, you know. She has just created this life for all of us that she single-handedly did that on her back. So for me, it's it's my mother for sure. But, you know, like, you know, like a lot of, of strong women, you know, I stand on my mother's shoulder, but my mother had to stand on another woman's shoulder, uh, shoulders. And that yes. was her mother, my grandmother, who said, you know what, go to Canada, figure it out, and I'll take care of your one and two-year-old child, which... You know, you have to think about in today's day and age, grandmothers, you know, they'll babysit, but they're not keeping your kid for seven or eight years or however yeah. long it takes. So for me, it's it's my mom. You know, throughout my life, I've had great mentors. I've had great, you know, teachers and educators. And, you know, of course, I can't I can't forget all those women that really kind of kept me and my mother and my family grounded and really helped support us. Have you uh, had a chance to to get back to St. Lucia much? Oh, yeah, I have. Well, I'm going, I'm getting married in June. And so Congrats. my say, yeah, thank you. Thank you. My for- wedding anniversary is in June. <laughs> is it? How many years? Yeah. This year will be nine years. I can't believe it. Wow. Okay. That's a good nine milestone. Years. We're, we're a little bit behind you. Yes. And uh, um, yeah, but we're going to St. Lucia for our honeymoon, one of our honeymoon spots. And the exciting thing is we, my fiance and I and my whole family went in 2015. But before I went in 2015, I hadn't been back 
in, um, oh my goodness, more than 20 something years. Wow. Yeah, more than like almost 23, 24 years. And it was too long. And um, and for me, it's that I got to understand what my mom was leaving and what she was what she was missing as well, if that makes sense. So she was going away to opportunity, but she was leaving behind this family in this island that really, you know, developed her and loved her and protected her and how much of a big risk that is. But if this is a plug for St. Lucia, if anybody is trying to travel somewhere, this is where you need to go. (laughs) <laughs> what do you yearn most whenever you know you, you, you're, you're heading home, right? What is, is it the food? Is it, you know, music? What, what is it that you, you look forward to the most? It's the food. Like, I am a foodie by nature. Like, there's basically yes. nothing I won't eat or try. I love, <laughs> I love West Indian candy. I love snacks. I think you guys call them, what do you guys call them? Johnny cakes? You yes. Know? Yeah, we, we call them bakes or float. I guess it depends on your island. But I love the food. That's my favorite, favorite thing. I am I am heading home later in the year as well. And, you know, for me, it's absolutely the food like there's there's nowhere that makes a fried fish uh, <laughs> quite like, you know, a, a spot that I love to go at, at right. Helsha Beach or jerk pork, you know, from Boston. Like that, yeah. you know, that experience for me is always one I look forward to as well. And it's not uh, the same when you're off the island, right? Like as much as we try and recreate it here, we go to restaurants where we live. It's not the same as having the authentic food cooked yes. right back home. Yes. Yeah, you're making me hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke about your your childhood a couple couple weeks back, and um, we're talking about your mom and the experiences she had, you know, raising you guys, uh, you and your siblings. Um, but it wasn't always the greatest, right? And and you shared with me some of the experiences you had around domestic violence. And I think you shared that, you know, your mom was was abused and, and you you had some experience in that. Is that right? Yeah, 100 percent. Yep. Yep. I um, you know, I've only just started I think healing and facing it because, you know, as an athlete, well, before an athlete, as a child, like you witness certain things and you experience certain things, but children are very resilient. And so I put a lot of it out of my mind and I, we we got away, you know, after a few years and we lived our life. And the complicated thing is my dad was still in our life. And, you know, and it's only now in writing this book that I've started the healing process, but I gave my first talk um, at the start of, you know, International Women's Month about this experience for the first time publicly. And I've been a a public speaker for more than 10 years, but I've never tackled this topic. And my first memory, I remember I was around four years old and my dad was angry about something and he's, he can be very unpredictable. And what's, what's, what I look back on now is, oh my God, one moment he's totally fine. And the next minute he's upset about something. And maybe my mom didn't wash the dishes or maybe my mother, um, you know, something mundane, didn't give him money for rent or something like that. And when I was four years old, the first memory I have is my dad putting my mother out, right? Not physically yet, but threatening to put her out. And he's raging, he's raging. And my fear was, it's the middle of the night, it's pitch dark. And my fear is, if he puts mom out, where is she going to go? Where is she going to go? And I remember as my mom is bawling and crying in the kitchen, and my dad is now storming to her bedroom, their bedroom, grabs my mother's things by the handful, flings open the front door of our bungalow and flings them outside. And at the same time, he's calling her all kinds of names that she's stupid. And, and this she, is when you're four years old? I'm about four years old, yeah. Wow. She's stupid and she's ugly and um, 
she cleans people's toilets because she was a, you know, a housekeeper and a nanny and just all kinds of derogatory remarks. And I remember he he called my other siblings who were in St. Lucia bastards. And I, for the life of me, this word bastard that he kept saying, I did not know what it meant. And I'm sitting on my mom and I'm holding on to her because I know my dad won't hit me. I'm very confident. You know, my dad was always, and I use this in air quotes now as a 36 year old woman. My dad was always good to me. He wasn't violent towards me or, you know, emotionally abusive towards me. So I'm sitting on my mom because I'm her, I'm her uh, protector. I'm her body, her body shield. And I remember being so frustrated because I'm holding her around the neck and sitting on her lap. And, but her legs are, are bigger than mine and mine are so skinny, almost like chicken legs that I'm so afraid that that's where dad will hit mom. Because my legs aren't big enough to, to shadow my mother's or to pre- or be her shield. Right. And when I realize he's storing back and taking more of her things, flinging open the door, the, the air rushes in and he flings more of herself outside. He's like, you got to get out. You hear you got to get the hell out this woman. More names, more names. And I'm like, I have to do something. You know, I have to act. And it was a scary decision to make because I'm protecting her with my own body, but I have to stop this. And so I get off of my mom and I go outside and I remember wearing a little pajama dress, a little itty bitty pajama dress and it being cold. And I gather as many of my mom's things as I can. And our street is eerily silent. It's like we're the only people in the world. It's pitch black. There's a few street lights. You know, we're at 148 Central Park Boulevard North in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. And I had memorized my address because mom made me. And I remember picking up as many things as I could, right? As my dad is raging inside, because if he puts her out, where will she go? And honestly, the only other witness I had was this crabapple tree that was in front of our front lawn. That was the only other witness I promise. And when I get to the door and I have as many of my mom's things in my little hand, I have a dilemma. And my dilemma is I can't open the door because my hands are so full. And to open the door, I have to let something go. But Stephen, I don't want to drop not one thing. Right. And I make the decision to drop something. I can't tell you what it was. It could have been her purse. It could have been a pair of shoes. It could have been a necklace. But I drop something and I open the door and I go in and I drop what I have in my hands inside the closet that is still raging, still carrying on, still cussing, telling my mom to get the hell out. And this got, went on probably two or three more cycles that I can remember. But as I'm going back and forth, trying to, to do what I can It's like, I'm not even there. My dad doesn't even see that I exist. And he's grabbing more things and throws them over my head to the point where I'm not, I'm invisible to him. And that's kind of where the memory leaves me, right? Because at four years old, you just don't have the capacity. And that's really where the memory leaves me. And, you know, researching for my book and whatnot, he never put my mom out. My mom didn't leave. She said, I'm not leaving. Because she knew when she she goes, where where is she going to go? And I don't know, but the night, the memory just, it basically stays with me going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and losing the battle against my dad. As he's throwing more stuff and I'm my little, you know, piece of this, piece of that, I can't, I can't compete with him, right? Until, you know, eventually the only thing I can imagine is I fell asleep or dad calmed down or he stopped or mom, oh, I know for sure my mom went out before the neighbors woke up and had to grab every single one of her belongings that he had put out on the front lawn, right? And you have to imagine, like me as a 36-year-old woman now with pride, I, I think of the demoralization, the humiliation. I think of, you know, the fear. And I think of, you know, the 
antagonist in my dad that would belittle her that much. And so for me, there, there's so many more examples of trauma and my dad inflicting trauma. And you wonder what goes through a man's mind when he does that. And so when I do talk about my mom being my hero and single-handedly really changing the trajectory of my life and the life of my siblings, she endured this for mm, at least six or seven years, which is a long time. Do you have a relationship with him today? My relationship with my dad is very complicated. And um, yeah, he's still around. He's still in our life. And um, which, you know, I think people will understand writing this book is very difficult because my dad is still around. Yeah. And I love him. And he's in his 70s now. And he, you know, you mellow with age and he's not that person. I don't think at least we're not. My parents aren't together and they haven't been together for decades, but it's so hard. No one has asked me that yet. And it's so hard to answer this question because, um, you know, I'm fearful of how he'll feel when this book is comes out. I'm fearful about what his friends will say because I love my father, right? I love him. And, and, and what I'm realizing, you know, being a first time writer or author is that all of us have grades of being good and bad, right? And there's some days where I'm mostly good, but there's some days where I'm, I have bad, bad moments. I could honk someone. I could cut them off. I could curse them, give them the finger. And so what I'm saying is someone who is bad, is not always bad. And someone who's good is not always good. That's just part of being a human being. And so with my dad, I've really worked hard in this book to paint the most honest and transparent picture of him. And to do that, I had to tell the truth. And telling the truth about the dark moments was difficult. But I also had to tell the truth about the good good moments too, because there were good moments with, with between my dad and my mom and towards him and I. And so he is still in my life today. I still do love my father. Um, suffice it to say, it's not the real... When you become a woman and you can, you have perspective and I honestly didn't face this until I was in my thirties. I, it started to bubble up when I was 27, 28, but I was still competing, still racing. And when I retired, when I was around 32, 33, that's when I could face it head on. And what broke my heart is you could have done right by us. You could have been a present partner and father to all of us, but you chose not to be. And why? Why is that? And so the the the, the relationship is complicated. I I alienated him for, for a while and I'm just slowly now warming back up to having him in my life um, and, and just not being as as hurt or, or negative towards my my childhood. Pretty. I appreciate you being so transparent to share those experiences and um you know, it's it's never an easy conversation, right? But you know, if if there's one woman who's listening who feels, uh, you know, inspired to stop her own experiences in in that because of you know some of what you're sharing, right? If not if not for herself, but for her kids, right? We've we've done our part a, a bit here. Uh, yeah, exactly. In, in in bringing light to that, right? I think so too, and yeah, and I think you're right. Like that's that's the whole message, and. I know when I did give my talk a few weeks back for the first time, I was really overwhelmed by the amount of women who came up to me crying. And I'm not equipped to deal with that. Like I shared my story for 45 minutes and I was not equipped to deal with the women coming to me after. But what they said is exactly what you said. It's I did it for my child. And I had no idea until I heard you speak the impact that it had on my children. Right. And so I think I'm just using this platform to tell my story. It's It could be dirty laundry to some people. You know, there's some people that said, well, why do you want to share this? What's the point? And for me, I could never tell my sports story unless I told this story because the two are are, are intertwined. 
So let's, let's talk about the sports story. Obviously, you have experienced so much over such a long period of time. But at what point did track and field actually enter your world? Were you a natural from from childhood? Oh, it's going to sound cocky, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I was a natural and um, I took to it really quickly. I was uh, discovered in grade three. I was about eight years old. And a track and field teacher, Mrs. Arthurs, or my gym teacher, Mrs. Arthurs, who was also the track coach at my at my elementary school, noticed me. And, um, and so you couldn't start track until you were in grade four. And so the next year she had me come out for the track team. And uh, I basically beat everybody in that first race. And that's really when it started. And track and field for me was an outlet. It was simply an outlet to be social. My friends did it. I like to laugh and have fun. And my mom worked a lot. And so all us kids had to fend for ourselves. And so after school, mom wasn't usually home. And so there was a way to occupy my time. Yeah, don't have to do dishes if I don't come home until, you know, after four o'clock, 530. You know what I mean? Like it, it all worked out. And so for me, track was really um, just something to do. No inklings that it would lead to the life that it gave me at all. No desire, honestly, for that. No long game, no no anticipation, no wishing. It was, it simply just happened. So, you know, man, your, your career is spanning, what, more than a decade, which is like forever in track and field, right? What were the, some of the biggest lessons that you learned about yourself on, on the big stage, right? Especially being around, like, and competing against Icons like Gail Devers, right? That, and then, you know, what maybe stuck with you and helped mold you into the person you've now become today? You know, yeah, more than 10 years in, in a sport you know, and being ranked like that's crazy to me right now yeah. that I look back and have perspective, like, you know, you're one injury away or motivation or just, you know, whatever. And so to have a career that long, I'm so grateful. And it's you're right. It's rare. Like one Olympic cycle is great. You know, to go through three or four, it's kind of like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. I know in the early days of my of being a professional and even be a collegiate and NCAA champion, I had to really use dislike as my motivator. So you name my biggest rival, Danielle Carruthers, Jenny Adams, Bridget Foster Hilton. Like I had wow. to dislike those people in order to compete at my best. Right. Wow. And I'm going to tell you a quick story and I've never shared this story. Um, really. I, my whole motivation to beat anyone was not to like them. It wasn't hate, but it was a disdain. It was a very intense disdain. And the only rivals of mine and direct competitors who didn't feel this brunt were training partners. So they were safe. So any any teammates, training partners didn't, didn't feel it. But if you were a direct threat to me in the hurdles, didn't like you. Like I had nicknames for you that weren't flattering. My teammates knew I didn't like you. And when I got to the line, I wanted to nyam your food. Okay. That's how I was. <laughs> and, <laughs> in, and I did that for years and it worked for years. And I was at a meet in 06 and I fell in that race in Lausanne and I was winning it. And I fell at the re- that race in Lausanne and Michelle Perry, the American passed me. But when I fell, um, I ended up finishing sixth or seventh and it was, just wasn't good. But then we had to go from Lausanne to the next Golden League, which was in Rome four days later. So when I get to Rome, I'm spooked now. Right. Because, oh, my God, you know, it was a few years after the Athens Olympics where I fell. I was disappointed. You know, here it is again. I'm falling again. Like, it's just not a good 
experience, right? Like I'm working, building my way back and we get to Rome and I'm around the clock doing therapy on my knee because I, I bust up my knee really bad. And I don't know if that I can erase, but again, you have an appearance fee. You're expected to race. The stadium is packed. You're a performer. You get out there and you do your job. So I wasn't healthy and I probably shouldn't have been there. And I was a deer in headlights. I was a spooked cat. I had my tail between my legs. Every analogy that Uh you can think of for fear, that was me. I didn't want to be there. I did. Plus, I wasn't physically healthy. My knee was hurting me so bad. And everyone knew what had happened the few days before. Because, you know, the, the top eight in the world, we all travel in a pod together. We go from meet to meet, blah, blah, blah. So everyone knew. And what we do is so intimate. You can look in someone's eyes and understand if she's on or off that day. What we do is so intimate. And before they say on your marks at the biggest, basically it's the biggest race of the season in this, that so far, the Rome um, Golden League, Bridget says to me, Perdita, you'll be fine. You know what to do, girl. You'll be okay. Like, just do what you need to do. And honestly, for a woman that I don't like, and when I say I don't like, not a personal dislike, right? But just more of a like, don't talk to me, don't look at me. Exactly. Like edgy, like no, no making nice. When she did that, I was so... I clung to those words. I clung to them because I had nobody. My agent wasn't around. My coach wasn't around. Like there was no one really to help me. And when Bridget broke code right before the gun went up and realized I was struggling from the time we went from Lausanne to now, didn't practice, didn't warm up, didn't look good. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And she found, she she broke code and said something to me. I clung to those words. Now I still finished second last. Okay. Basically dead last. So clearly I wasn't fit. But I remember thinking, here's a woman I don't like because she's my direct threat. Mm-hmm. And I felt so guilty in the mix zone after. And we didn't talk after that. Like, you know, it was just a quick minute thing. Right. And that was it. And I said to myself, Perdita, you spent so much time disliking Bridget and the next one and the next one. That look what she did for you. And honestly, Stephen, that changed my mentality. I understood then. and I was also maturing as an athlete. Right. I was only professional for maybe a year or two. And I realized you spend so much of your own energy outward, right? Focus it inwards. Do it for you. The fact that this woman could reach out to you and offer you support and offer you warmth, right? And you know you would never do that for her. You would pounce on her. That's not the kind of person that you want to be. And so it really didn't change overnight. It took me some time, but it changed overnight. And so when you ask me, what have I learned when I compete against, you know, the Bridget... Foster Hiltons and and the Gail Devers and and the biggest stars in track and field. I have learned it. We're more alike than different and we're more allies than enemies. And we are in this thing together. And it sounds totally cliche, but my competition is the hurdles, not the one beside me or on the other side. It is those 10 barriers and the stopwatch. And what happens if Bridget, who I don't like, doesn't show up. Am I slower that day? Like, so your focus for me has to be internal. And it's something I use now in my, in my life as I, as I, you know, as I work and I want to reach different levels of success in my, in my, in my life. Now I focus internally. I don't look at whatever anybody else has. I don't look around me. I don't care. It's not my business. I have 10 obstacles ahead of me and I'm going to do what I need to do today. And for me, that's probably been the biggest lesson is you can you don't need venom to succeed you don't need to be jealous or envious of anybody else what is for you like my mentor always says cannot be unfree 
Right. Yes. Yeah. That is so true. You know, uh, in the last episode, we we spoke with um, Keisha Smith Jeremy and we were talking about just this very thing that mm. dealing with that challenge inside of each of us. Right. Being greater than the external roadblocks and, and everything else that we, we sometimes complain about. Right. This person is out to get me. This boss is out to get me. Uh, you know, this life is out to get me when really. You know, our biggest competitor is ourselves, right? I actually have a reminder on my iPhone that reminds me every single day that I am my my biggest competitor. Exactly. And um, that's such a such a true point that you know I hope everyone listening is able to drive home and and really take hold of, right? That that's 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 worth worth this conversation. Believe <laughs> me, I appreciate that. Of course, uh, Pardita, I, I believe you still own the Canadian hundred meter hurdles record, right? Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be 13 years old this year, like 2004, 1246. Yeah, it's old, man. It's old. Will you be mad when it's broken someday? You know what? Someone asked me that. And and this is the honest truth, because I strive to be transparent all the time. Like, I, I don't mince my words. And the honest truth is no, no, because I think it just it symbolizes what I've accomplished and that no one, in, you know, the history of my country has done it. But it's meant to be broken. And that's what records are meant to do to do my actual um high school record which i think was older or just as old 98 no my junior record was maybe 19 years old or something like that and it was broken last summer and i remember wow. everyone yeah like tweeting me and, and mentioning it and all that kind of stuff and i congratulated the girl i was sincerely happy for her because you know my mantra is you can't erase what i've done you can eclipse it which i hope that you do because that's how we progress you know as women and as athletes and as people and so i don't I'm not convicious of what anybody else does, but to me, it doesn't erase what I've accomplished. So go ahead. Will I maybe be like, oh, that was nice. Oh, you know, and pour myself a little <laughs> glass of, of white wine and, and commiserate on the couch for five minutes. Sure. Maybe. But otherwise, I'm going to live my life and it's going to be fine and dandy. It's just a record. It's all good. You're not, you're not going to give us the Michael Johnson when, when you seen Bolt took his 200. <laughs> oh, he's so salty. Oh, Michael Johnson's so salty. <laughs> So when did you, you retired in 2013, right? I retired in 2013. My last race was actually 2012 because I needed a year to decide what am I going to do? Because you don't do something for this long and walk I, away I, overnight. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, right? How difficult was that decision to actually let go of what you've been doing for so long and pivot to the next chapter? You know what? My, um, you know, my, my career was was super long and was built with lots of highs and lows right which to me I had tasted all of it like there isn't when you are at an olympic or world championship start line and they announce your name for a stadium of 80,000 people and you can feel the adrenaline racing through your veins like nothing makes you feel more alive and human than that right Really? No. And I understood in 2012 when I was done that I could not, I didn't want to put in the work and the hours that it took to have that kind of reward, right? To have that kind of satisfaction. I was not willing to put in the work. And once I realized that, I knew it was time to step away. And I also understood that nothing will ever compete with that, right? It's almost like the one that got away. Like, I think we all, like, hopefully you're married to them. You know, have that one love in your life that is the one. And if you have <laughs> messed it up and they get away, you're like, oh man, that was, that was the one. I understood that track and field for me, there will be things that will eclipse it. There will be things that challenge 
that experience, but there will be nothing really like it, right? And at that point, I had nothing left to give. I didn't have an Olympic medal, although I had tried from 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, four Olympic games, I had tried to get an Olympic medal. Being the top five in the world for 10 years, never got a medal. Can you imagine the odds? And so for me, I had made peace with that. I had, I had, it was okay now, but it was the pursuit it was the journey. I had given chase and I didn't get it. And I was satisfied. I was okay. And so that 2013 year, that gap year was really to decide, are you serious? Like, can you walk away? Well, then who are you? What's your identity? Well, what the heck are you going to do next? And I understood in 20, 2011, probably the frontier changes a lot when you're an aging woman in, in sport, right? I don't care if it's track and field or tennis or whatever. When you're 23 and you're on the upswing, the sponsors, the people, the the meet directors love you. I mean, they can't give you a lane and pay you $15,000 fast enough, okay? When you are 30, when you're 31, when you're 32, and yeah, you get the occasional Diamond League win, but you're most likely gonna finish third, maybe second is okay, or maybe fifth or sixth, and you have an injury, so you're pulling out of races, you know, or there's a hot up and coming athlete, you know, hurdler, who's the big star now, your stock falls. And the shoe sponsor that you were all, you know, in love with and Google eyes and kiki 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 they sending you shipments every three quarters that you thought loved you for you don't love you no more not like that right, right. because they are upgrading the new model of the world class hurdler and excuse me pretty the Felician and everybody born in 1980 and before you are expiring and it was right. a new frontier for me and it was very it was I'm not, what's, what's the right word? It was, it was hurtful, right? Cause I wasn't prepared for not being, I was, I was not prepared for them divesting of the journey at that point. I thought they had invested till the end, but the next four years from at least 2011, 12 and 13 were very difficult, right? Because you're getting injured. No one believes in you and it's their business. No one owes you anything to pay you. But at that point I was sick of fighting my body. I was sick of fighting the people I thought were supporting me unconditionally. I was sick of it. And I was like, why, okay, am I going to the track every day fighting with this left Achilles tendonitis for me to finish fifth <laughs> Okay, maybe six in a race for Nike to reduce me or somebody to tell me, you know, give it up. You're what? what look, I was done. I was really done. And I was more curious about what the next part of my life was going to hold, which was way longer than the last, you know, 12, 15 years. I was more curious about what the next chapter had to offer. And when I realized that the idea of letting it go, super easy. Honestly, it was a relief. My last race Honestly, I took those spikes. I put them in the bag. I said, you will never see me again. This is awesome. Fredita, you know, you obviously thrived, right? I, I'm listening to you and, and sharing the story. You talked about being being coached, right, um, for, for so many years to be, ex be able to experience the success you had. Have you actually sought out mentors to help guide you through the years that followed, you know, your pivot from, from track? 
Um, yeah. Yes, in yeah. your new life. <laughs> um, yeah, in my new life, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have, I've had some really good mentors and I, I challenge anybody listening to me. I don't care if you're 99 or 19 years old, get you a good mentor. Someone that you can call at any hour of the day, someone that you can tell your, your, your inner truth, somebody that it's a safe space for you to be yourself, whether that's venting, whether that's selfish, whether that's braggadocious, someone who is a safe space that could tell you you are right or you are dead wrong. I have that. And it takes a while, though, to find the right mentor. You know, one of mine has been Molly Killingbeck. She's, you know, Olympic medalist uh, for Canada in the women's four by four. You know, has been a coach, an athlete, you know, administrator in sport here. Always has my back. Always has my back. If I'm wrong, Molly would be like, nah, honey, that's not. Nope, 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 no, that's wrong. If I've been wrong and I need to vent, she she will listen to me. You know, I have another man, Bob Babinski, who's been my mentor for about two years. More on the media broadcast and you know, handling my business, you know, you know, running my corporation, that sort of thing. And he's just been so good as a sounding board. Right. And here's the thing about mentors. Um, you have to want to be a mentor. Right. You have to want to be that person's go to. But I've found a very awesome I call it a board of directors for my life, right? And everybody has their role. You know, you might have the cheerleader, then you might have the kind of the um the one person who's the devil's advocate, but then you have the one person who kind of, you know, is almost like is there to be your 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 guardian in a way, like to kind of help you process all the things that you go to. But you have to find the right person who is there and talking to you for the right intentions because you get with the wrong person who's not really a mentor, you know, giving you bad or wrong advice. It's, it's not going to help you. But for me, it's been so great having people who I think are way smarter than me really helping me, you know, navigate this new world. Because here's what happens to a lot of athletes, especially the ones who taste a high level of success and who have been to the pinnacle of sport. Like there's nothing higher than the Olympic games, right? There is nothing higher than being an Olympic medalist or an Olympic finalist, right? There's what, what, what else is there to be and to do, right? That's the top. So when you've consistently tasted that kind of success, it is hard to know what comes next. It is hard to know what you want to do next because I've spent so many years of my life putting every single egg that I've ever hashed into this one basket, right? So I haven't cultivated other areas of my life. I haven't developed them. I haven't even looked into them. And so all of a sudden you spit me out of sport. I'm 33 years old. All the people who are my age and working are have been in the game for almost a decade and I'm way behind and I got to right. figure out a trade. I got to figure out a school. Wait, I got to go back to school and 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 oh no, I don't have all this funding and all this money coming in. Oh, and oh, all the money I have ever made, I've made from the age of 23 to 33. Really? Like I'm not going to make six figures every year. Like that's not normal. You know what I mean? Like year one, I'm making $20,000 and I'm looking at this, this statement like, Really? Like, what's that going to do? So, <laughs> so right. it's, it's, but it's a reality, right? It's a reality of the athlete lifestyle where you're so good at one thing that you're not, you haven't developed something else and you don't know where to go next. And I was fortunate that I found broadcasting. I knew I wanted to broadcast. I knew I wanted to speak and I knew I wanted to freelance. And I also knew it was very important to me to run my own life. I don't necessarily want to be at a job that I don't enjoy. If I want to play and, and work at McDonald's, if I want to work at a flower shop, if I want to, you know, invest in something and lose some money, like I can do that. And so I think you need to have a long game if you're an athlete 
or you aspire to be an athlete. Because what happens, Stephen, is you think it lasts forever. And when you're 21, when you're 23, when you're 24, that is forever, right? Like 34, 33 is forever. But then all of a sudden, you're 36, you're on the rowing machine at your gym, and the biggest competition you will ever have is going toe-to-toe with the six-year-old man beside you who has no idea you are in competition with him, okay? That is as good and as competitive as it's ever going to get. It's never, ever going to be the same. And until you realize that as an athlete, I don't think that you can move on. Not truly. Perdita, I feel like you're talking not only to people in track, but in any sport. Uh, I, I think, you know, every athlete at the highest level needs to hear this message, right? And and especially for kids, right? Because you have so many kids who are thinking like, hey, you know, I want to I wanna pursue a career in the NBA or the NFL or yeah. in some pro sport. And they're looking at the, the bright lights, but yeah. you're bringing up, you know, such a real... Uh, a real aspect to that, that, you know, even if you're able to attain that, you know, what comes on, on the back end of that, right? A hundred percent. It is. And it's rare. Like it's really rare. People think like Usain Bolt is like, you know, like look at what this man has done. Like most people never reach that level of success, right? Like be a college athlete, be a high school elite athlete. That's pretty much, you know, what the average person is can do. The amount of people in the history of the world that become Olympians, oh my goodness, like this, not many. And I think, you know, it's one of the projects I'm, I'm passionate about. And it's a long-term goal for me is, you know, talking and really helping support young athletes and their parents. Because I think what's happening is every parent thinks their child is going to be LeBron James or Usain Bolt. Everybody thinks they're gonna their child is is Michael Phelps, right? And if you look at their child do the stuff in the gym, I'm like, uh-uh, honey, I could I could look at him and tell you right now, it's not gonna happen for him. But you can't tell them nothing, right? You can't say anything to them. And I think some of these parents are it's dangerous what they're how they're indoctrinating their children, right? And they're not yeah. focusing their children to do other things. And their child are specialized at eight, nine, and ten, and like have these schedules that an elite professional athlete would have at 10 years old. In what life? Why is that necessary? And I think it's really up to parents to make sure your child has a wholesome life when they are a kid. Make sure sport is not a chore because that's how they burn out. And if you tell their kids, like, I'm so, I cringe whenever I hear and a, a mom, and I hear this all the time, I'm in this space where you'll hear a mom pro- proclaim their child in front of this child that they're going to be an Olympic medalist or they're going to be, you know, world record holder and all these kinds of things. Positive affirmation is amazing. It's wonderful, right? But when you project without a doubt that your child is absolutely going to be the, that that thing, and by the time 13-year-old Tommy reaches 18 and you realize, uh-uh, honey, he can't even jump high enough, you know what I mean? He can't even run fast enough. and and the people who were in the in the back have already surpassed him because you really can't predict those things when kids are that young. When you've already developed him to expect that he's going to be that become that thing and he doesn't become that thing, that's when you shatter dreams. That's when you like really really have to pick up the pieces and it's really hard for a child to move on. And I think it's really scary the messages that some parents are giving to their child because what happens if little Susanna, you know, turns out to not be this world-class athlete or doesn't make the team or doesn't grow. What do do you do? You know, it's crazy. 
And also, you know, just the win mentality, right? Like I fight even right now with with my six year old to to explain to her right now that, you know, you're not going to win all the time. Right. Uh, And and get a medal for every last thing that you participate in society today. Culture today is one that, you know, we reward our kids for for every last thing when truth, you know, it, it really doesn't do them much good in the long term, in the long, long game. It doesn't like we don't need to be, you know, not everyone needs to get a participation pin or a participation medal and exactly. a hand clap. Yeah, like we're rewarding mediocrity. And I'm like, it's okay to lose. In fact, you need to feel salty and you need to right. know what that feels like because those are things. That's where you learn. Exactly. In the long game, those are the things like that will serve you well in the end. But if you always feel like I need to be praised, I need to be rewarded, I need to be given this and this and that, this is how you you turn into like very underdeveloped adults who just don't understand, you know, work ethic. You know, you hear fail fast, but uh, and so many people refer to, you know, the process of of embracing failure. But, you know, I've learned more and more even talking to some 60 plus people now on this podcast. It's it's not so much the failure. It's it's that's where the discovery happens. That's where the lessons are. And, you know, I encourage parents listening to, to embrace that for their kids. Right. Like not to always tell these kids um, that they're going to win or, you know, and and, and set them up for failure, <laughs> real failure, when by doing so. There are some people who will listen to this who are the athletes, who are, you know, people who have maybe not even been athletes, but are having to pivot and, and, and transition and start over. And I'd love to maybe have you share, you know, a couple, a couple points of advice, right? Things that you think they might need to hear right now, ha- having been in that place uh, yourself to, to begin to lay the right foundation to grow and succeed on that next uh, part of the journey. Yeah. You know, I think for me, it's the idea of reinventing myself. I was always eyeing it while I was in sport. And so I think you're right, Stephen, like the everyday person who's not an Olympian is always having to kind of reinvent themselves or course correct if you've had a plan and it goes wrong you gotta you gotta figure it out for me I'm always plotting I'm always planning like even when I've I've achieved something I have a I have a one-month plan I have a one-year plan I have a three-year plan a 10-year plan I'm always looking at the long goal of the long the long game and I have a north star right and where does that start does that start with a 10-year and then kind of build off of you know, it is like, I know exactly. It starts, it starts. Okay. What are all the things I want to achieve? Right. I've always wanted to be a writer. So this idea of wanting to be a writer was when I was nine. I didn't know what the project would be or what it would be, but then I had this long career of being an athlete. So how the heck are you going to be a writer? Like who's going to take an athlete seriously and write a novel? Right. Right. So for me, I started, I went to school. I went to the University of Chicago, the writer studio for two years. And I'm like, you guys are going to take me seriously as a writer. And I got the biggest publisher in Canada to buy my book last, last, last summer, right? Off the manuscript, the 16, 17 page man, um, proposal, right? I hadn't written a word yet, but they bought the proposal. And, but that was a plan that was years in advance, right? And so anybody listening if you decide I want to be this and, 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 and fill in the blank, I want to be, you have to work backwards, right? And figure out every single step that will get you there. And it could be the littlest thing. It could be an email. It could be going to school. It could be a vision board. I can't tell you how much vision boards work for me. 
I tell you what, girl, I've started this year and I'm yes. looking at one right now and I'm just checking those boxes out. And yes. like, you know, just it is amazing it what works. a vision board does. It works. It works. works. Gangbusters. It works. It, it works. And the one and you led with this when we first started talking a while ago was gratitude. I have six words. Yeah. I got this from my mentor, Bob. I have six words and the words you choose can be what you need in your life right now. Right. Or what you want soon. And before you get up, before you check Instagram, before you double tap, before you Insta story, before you, you know, whatever, you know, talk to God, talk to whoever. But then you find your words and you say, I am. And you use that word. And so my words have been the same six words for almost two years, because this is what my my soul needs. This is what my life needs. And one of the words, the very last word is I am grateful. Mm. And honestly, Stephen. From the time in the two years that I've said I am grateful and I mean it. And I and I and I I I make myself feel what gratefulness is. Gratefulness is my mom is still around and she can call me and nag me in the morning and annoy me, but that is gratefulness. Because if anything ever happened to her, I wouldn't have that. Gratefulness is yo, that meal last night was great. And honestly, I didn't even pay for it because so and so took me out for dinner. Like you, whatever it is in your life. You feel it and you, you embody it in that moment before you even start your day, before you even approach anything. And me pouring out gratitude for what I have now and what I want and what I, what I, what I don't have is, has changed my world. I, I could go on the list and I actually did do a list last year and it was probably my, my most liked post on Facebook. I went through my month and I listed all the things that had happened to me. And all the things that I had achieved, not because I'm super great and I'm super awesome, but because I simply led from a place of gratitude, right? right. And I think when you are trying to recreate, reinvent, trying to achieve something, you have to understand that there are things around you that are out of your control, right? Mm -hmm. But it's your attitude, Right. Like you have created this podcast and it has been a great space where people can come together. They can share their ideas. You formed a community where there is a positive role model for your children. You know what I mean? And you weren't a person who said, oh, this would be a good idea. Oh, I think that's good. You did it. Right. And I'm sure you could make a podcast about all the positive things that have come into your world by doing this and giving back. Right. Yeah. And so I really think for me, what has made the difference in retirement and in this new role is understanding that I have to work. I have to work every single day for what I want. And I can't wait for my mom, my fiance, my mentor, my sisters to carry my dream for me. Because there's a time as an athlete, I wanted everyone's approval. I wanted everyone to praise me. I want everyone to say, oh, you broke the record. Good job. I wanted them, Stephen, to take this dream and this goal of whatever it was, you know, world champion, Olympic champion and drag it with me. Here's your piece. Here's your handle. Here's your little thing. Let's all drag it to Perdita Felician's finish line together. I realized at 36, that's not their business. So if you have a dream, all of you listening, that's not your husband's business. That's not your wife's business. That is your business to guard it, to protect it, to water it, to nurture it and get it to whatever finish line. Whether you have to wait and stop and catch your breath, whether you have to drag it, roll it, kick it, sleep on top of it, it is your job. And I think for me in the three years of retirement, that's what I realized. That's not to say that people around you don't support you, don't love you, but when you take that awesome responsibility as fully your own, that to me is when things happen. 
right? So I'm not waiting for my mom and she's my biggest cheerleader to call me, to wake me up and tell me, go look for your food, go get your money, go make this deal happen, go and do so-and-so. I'm not waiting for nobody. I'm not waiting for someone to say, oh, I saw you in a magazine. I saw you on the newspaper. I heard you on the radio. That's not my business, okay? My business is to do the best job that I can today. And if you support me along the way, I love you for it. But if you don't, guess what? I'm not stopping because I, like I said, I have my one week plan, my one month plan, my 10 year plan, and I'm going to get there. And hopefully. And that, that's when, you know, I give myself a pat on the back and keep pushing on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, sometimes, you, yeah, you know, you, you, you have to applaud yourself and, you and keep chugging along and not wait for. Exactly applause right exactly. um that is such a true point <laughs> i uh you know I, I i learn in that regard too it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission right yeah just pu- push push ahead towards your own goal right it's your goal it's not somebody else's goal it's true you know you have that vision that no one else there you are blessed by god to to be able to carry something to you know to life yes and you can't expect somebody else to see quite the way you do no and um you you know, I I connect to that so much in, in 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 several things, but especially with this podcast. You know, so many people that are are near and dear to me who you know didn't see it, and I, I I've shared this in the past. But you know, I had this podcast in my heart for a year before I let it out. You know, and I made sure I fleshed out every last detail because I knew it was gonna happen. And you know, before I got to the point where I voiced it to the world. I made sure I had my ducks in a row. Yes. Right. And no one is going to talk me off the shelf by the time, you know, I was able to to, (laughs) to voice it. Yeah. Right. Because I already knew. Right. I I wasn't looking for for permission, you know, Um, at that point. But that is a great point for people listening. Right. Because so many people get talked off that shelf. Yeah. They want validation. And what are you waiting? They for? want validation. Uh, yeah. You don't yeah. need it. Do your, do your thing. Go ahead. No one's stopping. You do it. And I love that you have, you know, that long-term goal. I actually have, I use Evernote, hardcore Evernote user. <laughs> uh, and you know, one of the things I have, you know, is, is a note, uh, I call my 10, 10 year hairy goals, right? Like yeah. my big hairy goals. And it's, you know, I, I literally have them dated up to 2026. You know, I did this last year, right? And I'm like, this is the Stephen Hart that will be contributing to the world. Yeah. Out at that point. Yeah. And like you said, you know, I've broken that back to the point where when I look at 2017, it's like, all right, what do you need to get accomplished this year so that by 2026, you are that author, you are doing this, you are doing that, right? I love to hear this, love to yeah. hear kind of where you're going. And I'm excited about, you know, your, your book deal and, and, and being able to, to get a copy of that next year yeah. and having you on when it's coming out. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I'm so, I'm so loving that you speak that language of like a 10 year plan, because I think what happens is we kind of like, we can, we can, we can stomach and we can digest one year, right? 10 years seems far, but I think what happens is we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in a decade. So Stephen, look at your last 10 years as to where you are now. I'm sure you've made leaps and bounds, you know, in the person and the partner and the human that you are, right? So track that with the same excitement of where you can be in 10 years. You know what I mean? Like I look at my last 10 years, I'm like, oh my goodness. Like I'm about to be an author. Like this dream seems so far away 10 years ago, but I'm so excited for 46 because I'm like, okay, a year from now, it might be difficult. You know, I might move the meter, you know, a tiny amount, but I can only imagine 
Actually, no, I'm not only going to imagine, I'm going to move that meter so much more in 10 years. Like it's, to me, that's what gets me really motivated and super excited. I, I love it. Love this conversation. We could go for another hour. Oh, I don't think we could. <laughs> <laughs> so Perdita, you know, we're nearing the end of, of today's session. And, um, you know, before I let you go, you know, we, we love to be able to tap into the resources of our trailblazer. And one of the things I'd love to to uh, pull from you is maybe having you share, you know, one uh, a book or two that you've read that truly inspired and impacted you. A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier by Ishmael Bia. And that is a book that was introduced to me uh, last, last January by Penguin Random House Canada, my publisher. And I had to go speak to youth and they're like, we need a book that's going to impact them. And this is, you know, young black men and women. And I thought they need to read this book about this young boy soldier in Sierra Leone who overcomes the odds, becomes an author, a human rights activist. But if you read what he had to live through in this book, and he's so vivid and he's so raw, I mean, it's gritty, right? So you have to be able to stomach this kind of memoir and it's a true story. To me, us sitting in our plush first world countries complaining about Starbucks getting our, you know, our order wrong or whatever it is, like pales in comparison and tells me that anybody can do anything. So that's a read. I recommend to everyone a long way gone. A long way gone. I love that. Party to final question, right? Um, we love to end our episodes with our guest um, sharing one action that our aspiring trailblazers, you know, coming off this call should put into action this week to help them blaze their trail. I have been for the last, since Friday, spring cleaning. And spring cleaning a room in my mom's house where I hoard all my prized possessions from trophies to pamphlets to magazines and posters of my life. And I was throwing things away that no longer bring me joy or I don't need to know. Like I don't, sorry, that aren't necessarily a symbol of my past success. I feel my past success. So I don't need to have every shred of paper and magazine and everything like that. I don't need to have that. So I think what I would tell some of your listeners to do is spring clean your life. Like spend a couple days, whether it's the people that you're texting with, you might need to delete some of them. Spring clean, delete, you won't miss them. Whether it's going into the space in your bedroom that is cluttered or, you know, not giving you joy, clear that space out. Whether it's going into the office at work and spring cleaning some of these relationships and these conversations and these contacts that are not for you done them and so for me it has just brought me like you should see the room I'm sitting in right now Stephen it's the room in my mom's house that I just hoard all my stuff and I shouldn't probably admit this it's so clear I feel light I feel good I think you know we're now in the first you know few weeks of spring you will feel so light you will feel so airy you'll be so good whether you are physically right or whether it's you know virtually cleaning up your life and the people and the things around you. Pardita, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate you taking time to share your story, right? I, I know your time is valuable. I know you have so much happening right now, but you were able to to kind of pour out pour out you know so much of your wisdom and knowledge and i feel blessed having you as part of of the podcast and excited 
for what's to come as you continue to develop this book and and develop this new life as you've explained it um so so thank you so much it has been an absolute treat and pleasure and um hopefully you have me back in in a year or whenever and um I can't wait to <laughs> Always. See, yeah i can't wait to see all the things you do with your, your little piece of the internet it's been uh it's been a thrill thank you well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Trailblazers podcast. I'll be posting links to all of today's book recommendations and links mentioned on our show notes page at tbpod.com. If today was your first time listening to the Trailblazers podcast, I just want to extend a warm Trailblazers welcome to you. We're so happy to have you here and we encourage you to go ahead and hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and browse through some of our past episodes to keep the knowledge flowing. If you're a fan of the podcast and today's content and you're maybe already subscribed to the podcast, please continue to share and invite your friends, your family, your colleagues to listen to an episode that you think might impact them most. We believe that someone listening to these inspiring stories will be moved to make significant changes that will have generational impact for many others, both now and well into the future. Don't miss next week's episode. New episodes are released each and every Monday by about 5 a.m. Eastern. Trailblazers, jump off this podcast today. Go find a way to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. Cheers.